You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for joining me, Sharon Noonan, for tonight's Best Possible Taste. On the programme this evening, I've lots to share with you, including food from Vietnam, new carrageen moss products in the market. I'll be finding out how to use beer to bake, and I'll also have details of an exciting exhibition that features bread. Before I introduce my first guest tonight, let me tell you how to get in touch. You can email me, s.noonan at live.ie, or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, which stands for Queen of organisation. So tonight in the studio I have a regular guest with whom you'll all be very familiar. Rachel Keeley comes into the studio once a month to fill the restaurant review slot for us but tonight she's here in a different capacity and it's to talk about her recent travels. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rachel, you're here to talk about something different tonight. We're not doing a review. You were actually going to talk about your recent travels to Vietnam and Thailand and what you thought of the food there. Yes, a little bit more exotic than normal, Sharon, but um, hopefully quite interesting. It's it's interesting every once in a while to look a bit further afield. And I was over there for Christmas. Only a short break, um, but long enough to get to taste some of the amazing cuisine. And why did you decide to spend Christmas there? Well, we wanted somewhere um, warm for a start, and we also wanted somewhere rich in culture. We didn't just want to go online on the beach for two weeks um, a little bit of that is nice but not for a full two weeks so uh, and they had fairly direct flights I say fairly they left from Dublin which is good anyway um, and you change over in Dubai so um, all, all in all it worked out quite well I mean the flights are expensive but once you get there it's a very affordable place to be on holiday and is the food cheap? incredibly cheap okay. like to the point of ridiculous um, you know even I mean street food obviously is is like 50 cent euro for a bowl of something and um, if you're not quite that adventurous even going to a nice restaurant might still cost you four or five euro for a lovely main course well let's talk about street food because of course one of the dangers whenever you're in a country that is selling street food mm-hmm. and it's a different type of food than your stomach is normally mm-hmm. used to you could end up rather sick you could and and that was, of course, a concern. You know, uh, in our house, we eat everything. So there's a lot of spices and a lot of different flavours. But I was more concerned um, to a certain extent with their, some of the food hygiene is a bit different on the street. You know, of course it would be. So, you know, outside our hotel, we'd see the, the ladies get set up at seven, eight o'clock in the morning, um, hang up their their trussed up ducks in the in the street and they still have the same ducks there like eight o'clock at night and it's 32 degree heat so it's a bit of a different approach to what we're used to um, so I had to be a little bit more cautious but at the same time still getting to enjoy everything there but we were blessed we were very lucky we, we didn't have any sort of dodgy tummies at all Give me an example of some of the dishes that you had in Vietnam um, Well quite a bit of a mixture I mean when it came to the street food we tasted a little bit of everything not really a clue what it was and um, just went with our gut and our instinct and um, it's interesting to see, you know, you go into the markets in Vietnam and, and just surrounded by this cacophony of sound and everyone is bargaining and it's amazing. It's such an amazing atmosphere. Um, but to see these huge vats of boiling hot oil next to you as you're kind of being pushed along in the throng and they're, they're deep frying entire chickens and things like that. It's, it's fascinating. Um, and we had, my husband especially is a bit more adventurous and he had lots of kebabs and pieces of chicken and pieces of duck and things like that. He really enjoyed. I really loved the fruit. It was fruit for sale absolutely everywhere and it's incredibly fresh, you know. Um, so that's a lovely way to start the day. Um, and then when it came to to restaurant dishes, uh, we had a lot of the the more familiar ones that even people would be familiar with here. For example, faux beau, which is essentially beef soup. But the beef soup is prepared a slightly different way. It's prepared, um, obviously, you build up a beef stock to a certain high heat. And then when it's poured into the bowl, you put in your noodles and uh, raw meat so essentially the hot liquid cooks it so it's very very fresh and very very flavoursome so that was one of the favourite dishes and, and again a bowl of faux might be 75 cent you know very very, very cheap, cheap. Mm. and a lot of eating in it as well for that and when we we moved on to the Mekong River then as well and we took a, a small sailboat up there when I say we took we were passengers on a small sailboat we didn't just sail anything there it's so busy the Mekong River as they say it's like their M50 it's it's there's so many boats on it every day um, but we had a variety of different dishes there actually we had deep fried spiked fish for example um, so you kind of have to work your way past the 
spices, the spikes in order to get to the meat inside, but but very, very, um, very fresh kind of robust flesh underneath and it's beautiful. And then they wrap that with fresh river vegetables in rice paper. So it's kind of like a spring roll. Okay. And what was your favourite dish overall? Um, probably a variety of the fobo. Sometimes you can get it... Uh, served as more of a main course um, so, so it's more of a sauce than a than a soup and I really really enjoyed that uh, again the flavours you're talking about star anise and cinnamon and black pepper and uh, chilies and there's just so much going into it that your you're kind of your senses are, are blown awake by it really you know so I really enjoyed that um, and we also had rabbit which I really liked as well I was a bit surprised to see it but um, I like that I'll try anything and it was, it was really really tasty very very well done that was Vietnam. In Thailand, was it completely different? Yeah, it was quite different. Um, we Obviously, you're still looking at very fresh flavours. You're looking at chilies and... Um, you know ginger and a lot of those kind of um, what we would consider exotic spices but but very very familiar over there um, but the you know the stalwarts of, the, of any Thai restaurant would be the Thai green curry uh, but I found to my uh, disappointment that all the curry we've ever had in this country isn't even isn't even a patch on, on, on how they make it over there and um, it's so much more rich and so much more vivid in terms of flavour uh, and they serve various sorts of uh, fruits inside it as well so you get what what looks like kind of chopped limes inside um, I don't think they were I think they were some sort of derivative of limes um, very very fresh coconut milk obviously you know coming from from trees not too far away uh, and much kind of much thicker, thicker and more silky sauce than we'd be used to here sometimes you can order it in Irish restaurants or in English restaurants or indeed anywhere that's not Thailand um, and it can be a little bit gelatinous but that wasn't the case at all with the with the green curry or the red curry that I had over there I would imagine you spent a bit of time at the markets now buying bits and pieces to bring home without a doubt yes um, I said most people come home with a couple of dodgy handbags I was the opposite I came home with an awful lot of uh, spices and different pre-prepared mixes and things like that again they were so cheap you know even uh, if I wanted to be a little bit lazy some night and used a, a red curry mix that was like 20-30 cent over there whereas obviously you'd pay minimum two euro here for a good one um, and lots of fresh cinnamon and star anise and things like that that can be a little bit harder to find here not impossible by any means but a little bit harder to find and I picked them up off the old lady selling them on the street had a bit of crack too of course while doing so well, you were negotiating and haggling were you? you you catch yourself then you're negotiating from 70 cent to 60 cent you're thinking jeepers give the lady the 70 cent <laughs> I think it's just habit though um, but no it was that's part of the fun getting to meet the locals and, and often they're very very willing to, to let you taste different things you know in Vietnam they had us tasting snake wine for example um, which I'm not going to lie was fairly appalling um, but apparently it's all sorts of magical properties so we, we had a little taste just to sort of make our hosts happy okay that sounds interesting <laughs> it was an entire dead snake inside yeah and have you recreated any of the dishes now that you're back home yes um, last week I went to the Chinese um, or the Asian store in Limerick City um, I think it's called Chong Heng Hong Oriental Supermarket and uh, bought quite a few of the extra um, ingredients I wouldn't have been able to bring home. So fresh ingredients like the fresh noodles and bok choy and things like that. Um, probably not remotely authentic to the way I would have had it in on the Mekong, but it was certainly worth a try. Uh, and I put it all together at home. It, it was actually quite a quick dish, the fobo, uh, and it lasted, you know, all week and we had it for lunch as, an, as a nice soup. But um the only thing is it, it really was very in terms of the, the aroma of it it was certainly very very strong with all those spices so my kitchen smelled like it for quite a while okay <laughs> worth it though <laughs> worth it <laughs> now you said when you make it you're putting raw meat yes into the liquid so the liquid must be a very high temperature to oh, cook it's, the it's meat oh it's at a ro- uh, kind of a rolling boil yes absolutely so it, it can only it has to be just off the hob when you're pouring it in otherwise it doesn't work but we ourselves anyway we would eat our, our meat medium rare so it doesn't have to be cooked fully through for us but of course then you do very carefully in your preparation with it so it's red meat steak is it steak yeah it? I think they recommend flank steak so it's kind of something that you would cut quite thick against the grain um, very very thin uh, sorry quite thinly against the grain so that it cooks quickly you don't want to put in big chunks of meat otherwise you'll be waiting quite a while for your soup to cook it okay well I hope now you're going to document 
document all this and put it onto your blog for people to see? Yeah, that's the plan. Um, since I stop eating some of the food and start writing about it, maybe. Um, but it'll be going up on the blog rmkeely.com and as usual, I'm tweeting about it at, or, at rmkeely. Rachel, thanks so much for coming in to share it with us. Where's your next trip going to be? We're thinking maybe about Israel, so wow. that could be interesting. Okay. Yeah. Keep me posted. We'll do. Look forward to hearing about that. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thanks, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Rachel for coming in and it was great to chat to her about something different rather than restaurants. You can check out her blog rmkeely.com and you'll find out lots more interesting information about her there. Still to come tonight, I'll be finding out about using beer to bake thanks to a chat with Caroline Hennessy and Kristen Jensen at the Foodie Forum in Galway at the start of February and I'll also have details of an exciting exhibition that features bread. Next though, it's time to put a call into County Donegal. I came across an exciting new venture recently on Twitter thanks to Zach Gallagher at the Irish Food Guide. It's a transition year project and it involves seaweed and I'm delighted to have Mary Kate Carr on the phone to tell me more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Mary Kate, thanks for taking the call to talk to me this evening. Thank you. You have a very exciting project with some of your schoolmates. What school do you go to? I go to college in the Carrigate in southwest Donegal. So you're way up the country there and you're a transition year student? Yeah. So there's a project that you have to do because you're in transition year. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah. Well, firstly, there's six members in our group for this business. There's myself, Amy Bourne, Rebecca McShane, Ronan O'Hare, Paddy McShane and David Boyle. And we're all TY students at college in the Carrigate. Um... We're doing two pro- programs for TY called NIFTY, which, is, which means basically Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship and Junior Achievement Ireland. Um, we have to do Junior Achievement Ireland in Irish. It's Comortus Gaelige A, Junior Achievement August Tagach Rubbe Gaelige, because we have the, the, everything's written in Irish for this project. And um, these are both competitions where you must set up your own mini business and enter competitions for the best business. Our business is basically pots of carrageen moss jelly, like lemon and honey carrageen jelly, and blackberry flavours. And um, we also have carrageen chocolate mousses made with milk boiled in carrageen moss. You can see carrageen. You see, you see carrageen moss is um, a natural gelatin when it's boiled in water or milk, and the strained liquids acts as a setter. And also, the jelly can be boiled down and drank hot. Uh, this is, would be for better for colds and flus and that, or it can just be eaten as a jelly if you like it like that. Carrageen moss is a seaweed? Yes, carrageen moss is a seaweed. It grows on the coast of the Atlantic on the rocks. It grows then in close proximity to where you live and where you go to school? Yeah, yeah, I live on the Atlantic coast, on the wild Atlantic way and in the coast of Nigal. I'm from, we're from the people in our group we, who go to our school they're both, there are two parishes called Glen Kill and Kilcar, and they're both on the coast of Donegal, where, the, where we grow, and I live quite close to the, the rocks and that, that would, we would pick it off. Just tell me, what's the actual company, your little company, called? It's called Milshog Namara. And why did you choose that name? Because it basically means um, sweet, uh, sweets of the sea, and it's, we basically have done a... Um, sweet kind of a carrageen jelly and it's a sweet kind of product of the sea that we've we add the sweet flavours to the carrageen moss which makes it a sweet product of the sea. And what was the inspiration behind actually coming up with carrageen moss products? Well when our leaders told us we had to think of an idea we thought of a lot of different ideas we um, we thought of we wanted a unique one though and we all we all kind of thought we went through many ideas, like um, we went to um, bookmarks and photo frames and postcards and everything like that, but none of them were that unique. So we thought, so one day I was kind of sick one night and I was given a hot carrageen moss to drink with, and my, I think my mum put in some le- a shot of lemon or something to make it nicer because uh, it doesn't taste that, it's kind of... No, it doesn't have the greatest taste in the stone now. And um, I, I woke up and I felt great. Like, my cough was all gone. I literally, it was, it was like a miracle. 
And um, I went in and the school that morning I was talking about it and we all thought, wouldn't that be a great idea too for our projects because nothing else has been done like this before. Um, now it's a, a, it's a good, unique product and um, the, on the, it promotes our area and it promotes Donegal and it's healthier and even better than Limsip and products like that. And did I read about a chocolate carrageen mousse? Yeah, it's made with, instead, you would usually put milk in chocolate mousse, but instead of the normal milk, we boil the carrageen moss, seaweed, in milk and strain the milk out, strain the seaweed out and we use the milk liquid that's been left instead of normal milk with cream and chocolate. That would be our, one of our less healthy options, but it's, one, it's healthier than, say, if you ate a bar of chocolate, but it's less healthy than... It wouldn't be used for now, the cold and flus, but it tastes nice and be healthier than chocolate. Well, you have a very interesting product range. Are you making it extensively at the moment, or at what stage are you out of manufacture? Well, we are in the very early stages of our business. Um, we started it off with just one flavour, lemon and honey, as it was an obvious healthy product to do, and it set as a jelly and everything. As we went throughout meeting the leaders and we expanded the jellies to further flavours such as blackberry blended up and added into the carrageen moss and set and strawberries and raspberries, you know, that kind of thing to do natural things. And then we developed a chocolate mousse with milk, as I said. Um, then we created like social media sites where we got good recognition and where you contact us and um, on Twitter and Facebook. We expanded our market research and did out surveys and let people taste the product and fill them out. Now we're heading to country markets now and we're getting good recognition from Irish newspapers and chefs and people who are interested on Twitter and things and um, people seem to like it, good, but people who are interested in health food such as this. So what is your vision? What do you see happening in the next few months? Um, well, first of all, yeah, um, but we hope to keep the business going after, even after we do TY. Um, we sh- we're going to go to a lot of country markets and try to get it um, keep active on our social media sites and we hope to sell lots of our product and to be successful in regard, not regards so that our products will be clearly in demand. Even like if I'm going way into the future now, it would be a great shell. It'd be a great thing to be on the shelves of shops because there's a good market. There's not, never been anything done sold like that, like Carrigan Moss product like that sold as in as a brand like where, this. It was mixed with different things. Where are you making it at the moment? Um, we uh, our group makes like every once a week to make it in our home ec room in the school, as it's like a certified kitchen and all that and. Uh, it's where it's handy to meet there instead of organising to go to someone's house and everything. So that and our home ec teacher is very good, Miss McGoldrick, to let us use her, kit, her kitchen and everything. And yeah, just we have good facilities in that sense. Well, it sounds like an amazing product. I wish I was closer so that I could actually try it, but I must keep an eye out for it the yeah. next time I'm up in that neck of the woods to to get a taste. Congratulations to you and your pals for being so innovative and um, good luck with it all. Would you tell us what your Facebook page is and your Twitter account before you go? Yeah, at Milkshugnamara on Twitter and on Facebook is just Milkshugnamara. Like, please like and follow. And if you want to get in contact with us, if, if you want to buy some, we could maybe sort something out or Milkshugnamara at gmail.com. Fantastic. Mary Kate, thanks so much for talking to me this evening. Oh, thank you very much, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. If you've just joined me, I was talking before the break to a very entrepreneurial young lady called Mary Kate Carr. And Mary Kate was telling me how she, along with a group of fellow students, are creating wonderful products using carrageen moss. And earlier in the show, my first guest was Rachel Keeley, who shared details about her dining experiences on a recent holiday, which included a visit to Vietnam. Never fear if you've missed any of that, because it will be 
be up on the best possible taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows you'll find the podcast there on soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show still to come tonight I'll be talking to artist Abigail O'Brien about her exhibition which is called With Bread but next it's time to go back in time to the foodie forum in Galway at the start of February when I was there I met the authors of a book called Slauncha it's the complete guide to craft beer and cider and by golly it's complete when you find how to make brownies in it have a listen to my chat with Caroline Hennessy and Kristen Jansen Cheers Chin chin Salut Slauncha Caroline and Kristen it's lovely to meet you both and you're going to tell me all about this fabulous book that you have out. It's called Slauncha, The Complete Guide to Irish Craft Beer and Cider. But it's so much more than that, I think. Well, we really wrote the book with the ambition of informing people and letting people know what amazing products, drinks are available on their own doorstep. You don't need to go for the foreign imports like wine. You can just go for something that's made down the road from you. And also it's the idea is to savour the beer or the cider properly. So we teach you how to how to drink it properly and what kind of glasses you'd use with it to match us with food so you can get the most from the foods and your drink and then to use it in cooking. And how did you come up with the idea to do the book and the collaboration? How did that all start? <laughs> well, we, uh, the time was right for it. You know, we kind of wrote the book that we wished we had had when we first discovered craft beer and wanted to get into matching it with food. So there was just such a burgeoning movement over the past few years and nothing, you know, such a shortage of information. So this was our way of trying to collect everything together in one place and, as Caroline said, to really bring the reader along and tell them everything they need to know. And did you go to a publisher and say to the publisher, we have this idea, or did you start to work on it together and hatch a plan to to actually go and approach somebody? It was a bit of both. Uh, My research in craft beer has been happening since 1998, when I was in Cork. I was uh, studying in Cork when the Franciscan Well opened, and that was one of the very early... Um, craft beer producers where you could actually go into their bar and buy a pint of Blarney Blonde and for a Heineken drinker that was just was like eye opening and then so the, I've been kind of you know this has been in my head for quite a few years and then Kristen comes from the States so you would have a very different experience of craft beer yeah because we're about third, 20 to 30 years behind the States and the UK in terms of craft beer movement so this has been a long time coming and it was you know inevitable that it would come and that is part of the the renaissance here that people have traveled to the UK to the US had these kinds of beers there and come back home going why don't we have anything like we're famous beer drinkers and yet we don't have anything comparable and a lot of the brewers will tell you that that's kind of what planted the seed in their head to start their own brewery you are an editor, aren't you, Kristen? I am, yes. So did that give you a head start in getting a, a book deal? Well, it, it gave us an insight, I suppose, a head start in terms of the insight, because I do work in publishing. So I, we did have a very clear idea about the structure of the book you know, and what we wanted to achieve and the format. And you know, we kind of had it all in our heads, and it was just getting a publisher to see the potential as well. I would imagine that having the structure and the format very well set out is very important whenever there's two of you working on the project. Well, I suppose as well, a lot of this book happened, like Kristen lives in RD in Louth, I live down in North Cork, so a lot of it happened online, you know, between... Late at night. <laughs> late at night, and you're, we were sending emails back and forth to each other. So, like, I would say for any author, having a good editor in your corner <laughs> is incredible, and having one that's your co-author makes all the difference because Kristen had a very clear idea of how things were to be structured which as a first time author you wouldn't necessarily think that way so having an editor on site definitely has enormous benefits. (laughs) Well let's talk about the book and the format and the structure of it in terms of content what way is it laid out? It kind of starts at the start Um, it talks about what is beer what is cider Um, Then it goes into the history uh, in an Irish context and how it's made, how to taste it, 
then you kind of move on to the stories behind the producers and that's you know always one of the key things that's so attractive about any artisan product is the people and the stories behind it so we try to give a little taste of all of that then we move on to what is my favorite section is the food matching and the cheese matching with beer and cider again because that's you know there's this trend now we eat at home more often you know after the recession and so you're at home and you've got these lovely beers these lovely Irish farmhouse cheeses you know you've cooked your nice dinner you know how to put that all together and at the end at the last section of the book we talk about how to put the beer in your cooking uh, with not just there's more to beer and cooking than just a porter cake although we do have a recipe for that as well and um, the very last section then is resources, festivals, you know, where you can find out more information. So we like to say it does what it says on the tin. It takes you right the way through everything you could possibly want to know. It's in there. And the recipes that are in it, Caroline, are not necessarily the recipes that people would expect to see in it. For example, you gave me a lovely brownie there and you told me there's beer in it. Well, that is the recipe... I think for some people has been worth the price of the book alone. Um, that is a double chocolate porter brownie, and it's made with uh, a 330 or 250 milliliters of beer in each batch of brownies. So there's a substantial amount of beer gone in there, and it makes it so dense and moist and flavor. It's a flavor that you just don't get from a regular brownie batter. Um, I have to say the raw batter tastes amazing because you still have the alcohol in there. But it's, for me, like I suppose the, the cook section, I, I'm, um, I was I'm in Ballyblue, I spent three months doing the cookery course and cooking is, is, has always been a passion of mine and something that I like to approach with a kind of a scientific line of thought and so you know it's like it's not just throwing beer in or cider in to see how it works it's like clearly thinking out and testing the recipes and figuring out how to make it work right and so that that I really enjoyed working on on that section Um, and I have to say my family really enjoyed me working on that section when there were numerous numerous um, incarnations of the brownie recipe before I came to the one that I'm happy with and it's the, thing is, <laughs> the, the great thing about the brownies as well, and because we'll be tasting them here today at uh, the Foodie Forum with um, Knock Meal Down Stout from 8 Degrees. So I, part of my interest in beer is that I'm married to a brewer. There's no escaping. Um, and I work with 8 Degrees Brewing. So it gives me a different insight into the whole brewing world and also into the possibilities of the different flavours and putting them into food. And that's, that's magic. Now you said you were Ballymaloo trained and I noticed that the foreword is by Darina Allen. Yes. Yeah, well, Darina was one of the very first mainstream authors, uh, writers, um, to notice the trend going on in Irish craft beer. And I know that for a lot of people... A lot of people who are involved in the industry, you know, she writes a column in the Irish Examiner every week and she started talking about the different beers from Dungarvan and Metalman and, and Eight Degrees. And people were going, this is it. We kind of, we suddenly got our heads above the parapet because it's very easy to preach to convert it. You know, there's always going to be, at every beer festival we go to, there's always going to be people there who just drink craft beer. But where, that's only, you know, and that's 90, 98.5% of the population of the beer drinkers. So where craft beer really has to make their move is to change the 1.5% of craft beer drinkers to make that spread out make people realise there's more to life than just the mainstream macro boring brews and to go for it you know and to, to try beers and different flavours and part of that is trying to you know like people like Doreen Allen writing about craft beers in a paper that you wouldn't expect at that time to see anything about beer in it made people kind of sit up and take a bit more notice of the industry and go out perhaps and look for their beers. Kristen, if you come across somebody who is a traditional beer drinker insofar as they like the American beers, what beer would you suggest that they go for first as a, as a kind of an introduction and a stepping stone to getting into the, the taste of the, the craft beer? That's a really good question. I'd like to suggest a Blondale because it's really uh, mellow 
really nice match with food, you know, very versatile, but it's not going to hit you over the head with hops. You know, a lot of people uh, think craft beers are just too much, you know, maybe too much flavor, too much alcohol. And if you're used to drinking the big brands that are quite flavorless, then it can be a bit of a shock to pick up an IPA and it's like a smack in the mouth with all those hops. So kind of ease into it. Start with a light blonde beer or pilsner or a lager. But a craft lager is actually going to have a taste. It's going to have a lovely biscuity, bready, slight ping from the hops as opposed to just being insipid like a big brand. And then work your way up from there. and Or even experiment amongst the different brands because even the same style will be interpreted different ways amongst the brewers and have different nuances and flavors. And the percentage of alcohol then, how do they compare to the traditional American beers? Um, I think that there is more alcohol. There would be more alcohol. And it depends really on the, the beers, the beer style and yeah. the brewers. So you can have, you know, anything from like know, a properly Irish-made Pilsner that's coming in at 4%, which is less than a 4.3 of the big brands, um, to, you know, you're going 5% then for some of the more mainstream, like pale ale kind of things, and then right up to, you know, 8 and 9% for the super-duper, very, you know, like, rare sometimes um, seasonal like winter se- specials yes yeah and when you'd want to drink it like something yeah. something really really got, that's got a, a lot going on but so you've got a range there so it's not true to say that and I think some people think oh yeah craft beer it's like it's all way the ABV the alcohol by volume is really really high look at the bottle you know we drink bottles of wine without ever looking at the alcohol on it and you know if you pick up good red from, from Australia, it can be up to 14 or 15% these days, and that's going to give you a humdinger of a hangover the next day. It thinking, sure is. You only had a couple of glasses of it. <laughs> so in the same way, look at, look, at the, um, look at the alcohol by volume of beer, and you can judge then accordingly. Well, it's a fabulous book. If listeners want to get hold of it, where do they go? It's in all good bookshops. It's also in a lot of independent off-licenses, and it's available on usual online channels as well as directly from the publisher, New Island. Caroline and Kristen, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks Thank for you, us. Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break you heard me chatting to Caroline Hennessy and Kristen Jensen about their book Slauncha, The Complete Guide to Craft Beer and Cider, worth getting for that brownie recipe alone because the one I had was absolutely delicious. Now it's almost time to look at some events coming up for your diary but before that I want to find out more about a specific event tonight. It's actually an exhibition and it's called With Bread and I'm delighted to have the art Abigail O'Brien on the phone now to tell us more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Abigail, thanks for taking the call this evening. Thank you for uh, inviting me to speak to you. I'm very excited to talk to you about this exhibition. It's called With Bread. Just tell the listeners what they can expect when they go along to it. Well, With Bread consists of... um, one room with many sculptures of cast breads, breads that have been cast in um, bronze and then silver plated, and some of them are under cloches. And there's breads, all types of different breads. And then there's uh, photographs of um, mostly dough and the bread making process. And um, and there's a video called Grand Dame, which is. Um, Elevan, uh, the the starter dough. No, whenever you say there's bread there, there's sculptures of bread. Mm-hmm. Is there real bread inside the bronze? Mm, it would have started out that way, and um, some uh, moulds would have been made of the bread, and then it's um, cast in bronze and silver plated. And in some cases, there would be perhaps tiny bits left where it didn't get burnt out when it was being, you know, cast. Where did you get the inspiration to do an exhibition of this nature? 
Well, bread has been part of my work for for years now. I made um, a series called The Seven Sacraments. And, of course, one of the seven sacraments is the um, communion. And so I worked with bread for that and uh, just always loved the whole business of making bread and bread per se, you know. And so, I mean, to be able to do sculptures and photography and video, you must be very multi-skilled and multi-talented. <laughs> I, I, I like the fact that you can move um, between different things, that you don't have to just use a pencil or a brush or, you know, video or sound, that you can mix it up a bit. And this isn't the first time that a food item has been the focus of an exhibition for you. No, no. I worked with um, Mary Kelly and we did um, a piece called How to Butterfly a Leg of Lamb. And uh, that was also a video and sculpture installation. And I've worked, uh, I found a meringue when I was away in Italy a few years ago. And... um, I photographed it and made a piece called Bella. So it's a series of images of this meringue, uh, like a photo shoot. Food is kind of part of my work, yeah. It's in, obviously, in communion. Uh, I worked in one of the kitchen centres here in Dublin and made some still lives of different foods. Uh, Studying the paintings of... um, you know, Spanish still life painters and uh, echoing the kind of work that they made in the past in a contemporary way, obviously. For this particular exhibition, because there are the three different elements to it Mm -hmm. and the framed photographs are photographs that have been taken in four bakeries all over Ireland, it must take an awful long time to put all these exhibits together, to create them and then decide which ones you're going to use. Oh, yeah. Well, it's about a um, couple of years. In 2008, I was commissioned to make some work in Oldfield Sweet uh, Factory. And the idea was to make um, a book which would um, be a celebration of the work there. So I suppose that was um, the first time I used a digital camera because of the light in the bakery being very... Um, different in different parts of it and also I was making portraits there and the the people were working so you couldn't ask them to stop. It was a kind of a system that had to be kept on the move all the time and that was fascinating because it was like watching some kind of choreography you know Um, so yeah when you work with digital it means that you have a lot more to play with Um, you're taking more shots uh, whereas with the analogue, uh, it was a slower process. And to get a photograph um, digitised was quite expensive. So it would make you a bit more, um, slow down a lot more, you know. And uh, I suppose um, this project would have taken about two years to, from start to finish. Like that's a long time. That's a lot of your time, isn't it? So yeah, presumably you, fun. you 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 had like, a you had a sponsor or a funder to to support the project for you. Uh, yeah, my husband is very uh, <laughs> he's a very understanding person, <laughs> and uh, usually what happens is if you make any work from sales. Um, that goes back into the next project that I do, you know. So are all the exhibits that are there as part of this With Bread exhibition, are they for sale? They are indeed, yeah. Some of them have sold, which is great. And uh, that means I can keep going, you know. Last year, it was in Drogheda and in Carrick and Shannon as well, and it's in Limerick City at the moment in the the gallery there just mm-hmm. on on Perry Square at the gardens and um what Which sort of brilliant to have you know three places to show your work in because very often you may have a show and that's it the, the work might not see the light of day again for years if at all you know and what sort of feedback have you got from people that have have visited the exhibition mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people really like it and um, they they get the work. They they 
they can have a they have a strong sense of what I'm about, you know. It's lovely. And what's next in the pipeline? <laughs> um, I, I have a couple of ideas, but it's too early to to um, to say. One of them I'm working on is the. Um, I've been working through the virtues, so I'm now working on the virtue of prudence and the, the game of golf. Wow, it just all sounds fascinating to me. <laughs> and I'm sure there's people out there as well that say, like, they'd love to be artists. They might like to paint or do sculpture mm-hmm. or whatever. What advice do you, do you give to people? Oh, I think absolutely go for it. But have, you know, do it because you love it and because you you absolutely have to do it. There's parts of being an artist that sounds like, um, uh, you know... <laughs> Not, not to say easy, but it sounds like, you know, you just spend all day dreaming and thinking. But there ha- it has its lonely parts and its frustrations and you get rejected an awful lot, so you need to have a bit of a thick skin. And there's sometimes where you don't have any shows in the pipeline and you just have to have faith and believe that something will come about, you know. And what do you like about the space in Limerick City, in the gallery there, that it's on display Oh, it's fabulous space, and it's wonderful to be working with all the team there. Um, and I have downstairs, which is great. So my sculptures are actually next door to the coffee shop, which is nice. So that you go through the sculptures to have your coffee and maybe even your your fresh bread and a cup of tea, you know. Well, as I said, it is in Limerick at the moment at the Limerick City Gallery of Art, which is just on Perry Square there. It's a free exhibition, so no excuses for people not to pop in. And as you said, the the coffee shop is there as well. So what what more excuses would people need? You'd be made very welcome. Absolutely. Abigail, thanks so much for talking to me tonight. And best of luck with the next project. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Cheers. Chin-chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks to Abigail for her insight into the exhibition with bread. And if you get a chance to visit it in Limerick at the Carnegie Building there, Perry Square, be sure to let me know what you think. Details of some other events that might be of interest. Claire's Wish Foundation is hosting a charity coffee and networking morning this Thursday, the 26th of February from 10 o'clock to 11.30am. That is in the National Franchise Centre, 106 to 108 O'Connell Street in Limerick, based on the fourth floor over the AIB Bank. And it says here that there will be a chance for networking, but it's also an opportunity to get involved in supporting adults with terminal and life-threatening conditions and um, there'll be a chance to win a spot prize. In Kerry, the Just Cooking Cookery School continues its series of on-hands demos with Mad for Fish, Gluten-Free Baking and a Taste of Thailand. Check out justcooking.ie for dates and rates. If you're in the City West area, check out milagallery.ie for details of their men-only class that's on tomorrow night and on Friday it's the theme of Meals for All the Family. Hook and Ladder in Limerick City has a whole chicken cookery class tomorrow night and a Thai cuisine cookery class next week. Go to the website hookandladder.ie and all the information is there on how to book. A couple of web addresses for you to keep an eye on because you really need to book well in advance. The Tannery Cookery School in Dungarvan County, Waterford. Tannery.ie is the web address there. And in the North Belfast Cookery School, has lots of different classes and they book up very quickly so you should check out belfastcookeryschool.com and plan well in advance. Please keep sending me details of your cookery demos, food courses, product launches and fundraisers to s.noonan at live.ie and I'll be only too delighted to give them a shout out here on the diary on best possible taste. Now, usually at this point, I'm about to sign off, but we are well ahead of time tonight. So what I'm going to do is I think it's time for a catch up with Karen Coakley of Kenmare Foodies. So I'm going to give her a buzz now. So bear with me. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Karen, thanks for joining me this evening. How are you, Sharon? I'm great, and I'm looking forward to this fabulous recipe, Eggs Benedict, that you have for me this evening. Yeah, Eggs Benedict. I think coming up to, um, I was going to say Halloween, but coming up to Valentine's Day, I had tweeted, you know, a few of my friends, or I put a tweet out there saying, what would your ideal Valentine's dinner be, or your ideal Valentine's meal? And I said, would it be breakfast? 
would it be brunch or would it be dinner? And what came back to me was the majority, and they were all women who came back to me, and they said, actually, overwhelmingly, it was breakfast or brunch, like breakfast in bed. And I totally get that because for me, you know, we've got the kids here, so we never actually have the chance to sit down on our own and have a lovely meal at home, even though the idea is fabulous. But what I do love is, you know, Saturday and Sunday mornings, now that the kids are older and we don't have to be up to the crack of dawn feeding them, it's lovely to kind of like have a lazy Sunday morning in bed. They're downstairs pottering. And then you get up and you can make a lovely brunch. So one of our favourites, my husband is just demented for this, is Eggs Benedict. And like that, you'd often have it in hotel menus. Well, not very often, but sometimes if you're lucky enough to go to a really nice hotel, you will get Eggs Benedict on the menu. And we both love it. And I was always intrigued because, number one, I wasn't confident poaching eggs. I was thinking, okay, what kind of ham do I have to use? Where do I get the muffins? How do I make the hollandaise sauce? And the hollandaise sauce was the thing that terrified me. But thankfully, we have Lidl here in Khmer, as every town does now, and Lidl actually sell the breakfast muffins that you need for this. And I think Tesco's have them as well. Tesco and Clarny have them. So basically, um, I set about and I conquered my fear, and we now have Eggs Benedict regularly enough and it's just it's fabulous it's a really luxurious decadent breakfast and you really feel like you're spoiling yourself and then it's so filling you can go without lunch so for us on a Sunday have it at about 11 o'clock and then you're free to just you know do what you want in the afternoon so it's it's poached eggs there's hollandaise sauce there's a muffin and some ham and the ham so basically you get your breakfast muffin and you cut that in half pop it in your toaster (laughs) we're allowed to put that in the toaster are we (laughs) we're allowed to put that in the toaster (laughs) so you toast that and then you get a slice of ham okay cut it in half so you get a slice of ham and layer your slice of ham on each half and then in the meantime you poach two eggs one for the top of each muffin and what you do with the eggs is well what I do anyway and it works for me is I bring the water to like a good simmer a good strong simmer and I put in some um wine vinegar or cider vinegar I think what that does is that helps to actually bind the white together so that when you take your egg out your poached egg out you have a nice firm shape to your poached egg you see the difference between one that's been cooked in the vinegar you kind of go wow that looks perfectly round so you pop when you pop in your break your egg into a glass I always find that easier then slide it into the water I then turn it down to a very low simmer and I just give a swirl around with your spoon because that will just get the egg moving and get that lovely circular motion and bring all the white together and just let it sit there for about three minutes and then take it out with a smashed spoon you put that on top of your ham and in the meantime then you make your hollandaise sauce now i looked up my ballymaloo cookbook it's my really it's my go-to cookbook for everything that i'm not sure of you know it's for referrals and everything and darina allen gives a recipe for hollandaise sauce which i do do as well it's a bit trickier where you have the glass bowl on the top of the water, you know, at a very low simmer, and you whisk your eggs with a dessert spoon of water, and then you add in your butter, your cubed butter, one piece at a time, and you keep stirring it and stirring it, but then you're always afraid of it splitting, you're afraid of it being too thick or too thin. Now, I do do that sometimes, and especially if I'm making a Bernays sauce, but what I found with this, it's another recipe of hers, and it works perfectly, and she recommends it, is that you literally... You melt four ounces of butter until it foams. You get two egg yolks, one dessert spoon of water. Now, I add in a squeeze of lemon juice because I just like that tartness to it and maybe a splash of white wine vinegar. So you put the, melt the butter, put the eggs, the water and vinegar into a blender, like a liquidizer. And with your motor running, just pour in your melted butter and it'll thicken away in front of you. Season with salt and pepper and pour it over your poached eggs. And off you go. He'll love you forever. And that sounds like a much easier way to do it than standing whisking over the, the simmering water. It is a much easier way. And the ham, what ham do you use with it? Any sliced ham. like it, Because that's the one thing that I think I was surprised with. You know, I was in hotels and I was looking underneath my eggs, you know, <laughs> picking them, like poking them up to see what was underneath. And in most of them I did find that it was just a processed regular ham that you get from your it wasn't like a home cooked sliced ham it's just ordinary like ham 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 for sandwiches okay now you mentioned they're seasoning it with salt and pepper and you actually have an, a new product that you've discovered which is a salt i do i was in Tralee about three weeks ago because my son had an north atlantic appointment and we went to a cafe 
cafe called Daily Grind, which I hope to actually cover that someday soon because it's a beautiful cafe. The decor inside there is gorgeous. We had a beautiful bowl of soup. The prices were great. Everything, it ticked all the boxes. And the biggest tick on the box for me was on the table. There was a green tub of salt. And I kind of thought, hmm, that looks a little bit big for the table. Now, I've spoken to the man who is behind this salt, and he said they're looking at the packaging because, yes, it is too big, and they're going to size it down and make it more economical in the sizing down for people. And it's called Irish Biosalt, and it's from Ballyhig. So this, again, is another great Kerry story. Uh, what it is, is it's salt infused with Irish kelp. And, you know, seaweed is becoming very popular and very fashionable. We heard all about it at the Foodie Forum from Sally McKenna and Kevin Thornton. They gave a fabulous um, demo and a talk up there on seaweeds and, you know, use of seaweeds in cooking. And Brian McCarthy, the same, gave a lovely talk on um, using seaweed in his Japanese cooking, you know, for dashies and things like that. So basically, because there's kale, or not sorry, kale, because there's kelp used through the salt, it has 65% less sodium. Now, he said to me, he has, I think a man from Connemara is gathering the kelp for him. And what I like about this is my dad had a very bad heart attack about six years ago. So my dad has been put off salt completely. And what my dad tends to use is the low salt. And I just think that anything that is, they say, you know, low-fat butter, low-fat mayonnaise, all of that kind of stuff. And you're better off doing without it and having a little bit of the real thing because what the process that all these things have to go through is actually worth for you in the long run. So I think for people who are watching their heart health or their cholesterol or their blood pressure, this is a good one for them. Or not even going for the salt, just use like the seaweed. Just use the seaweed as a... As a, as a, a seasoning. Yeah, as a seasoning. I know Brian McCarthy at the Foodie Forum, he had made kelp salt himself. Now, funny enough, I made salt, my own salt, two weeks ago. Forgot to tell you that one. Um, and it was, again, inspired by what I saw at the Foodie Forum and... I'm a bit nuts like that. I like to try anything, especially if it's something that I think I can do myself and keep it as natural as can be. So off I went with the twins. We went down to Kinmare Pier with a galvanized bucket and we brought home our bucket of salt water and put it into a stock pot and I let it boil down overnight. Well, it took a few hours. And then what you have is you have this like white sludge at the bottom. Now, if you have a restaurant, because a lot of restaurants I found out are doing this, so if, if you have a restaurant, what you do is you put it into a dehydrator, but I don't have a restaurant, so I put it into a very low oven overnight. And the following morning, I had my own sea salt, which I was just blown away by. And did you have much of it? I did have, I actually did have it, but I had a small Tupperware container of it. I was surprised because I thought, I bet there'd be nothing. It was a stock pot, if you can imagine, like a standard stock pot. I don't know how many metres is in mine. And it was nearly full to the top, almost full to the brim and I let it boil down. So I was surprised with the amount of salt that I got out of it at the end. I've used most of it. The twins took some to school, um, and they liked that. They were delighted because they're seven, so they were delighted to take it to school and to show their friends. And then I was able to explain to them about the evaporation process. You know, and they saw all of that, you know, the, the steam coming out, and my little man went off like a right little scientist to school, telling everybody <laughs> about his homemade salt. But again, it's, you know, it's introducing children to food and teaching them about food and... I think that's a lot of the reason why my children eat what they eat because they're involved in the process. And if listeners want to find out more about that, it's all up on your blog, no doubt. KenMareFoodies.com is the website and all your contact details are there. And um, Facebook, um, KenMareFoodies on Facebook and on Twitter at KenMareFoodies. It's good to talk to you again, Karen, and we shall keep in touch. Thank you, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Now we are at the end of tonight's show, so thanks very much for listening. And to all of my guests, Rachel Keeley, Mary-Kate Carr, Caroline Hennessy, Kristen Jensen, Abigail O'Brien and Karen Coakley. Tonight's show will be up on the podcast in the next couple of days, soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show. So until next week, when restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley will return, this time to review the Cock and Bull restaurant in Cork. Bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!